today. I want to address those of you who are um, joining the live stream for the first time, those of you who are part of, of our, our greater audience today for the first time. I want to uh, tell you that you have dropped into our, uh, our worship uh, series here, our, our sermon series, sorry, and the, uh, ser- our sermon series right at the end. You have come right at the end of a series that we've been working our way through all summer on the Apostle Paul. And as we are working our way, as we've been working our way through it, this is the last conversation we'll be having for a while. This series is culminating. Now, don't, don't, don't feel bad. Don't feel like you need to uh, go back and listen to all that we have done this summer, though you might. But what I want to say to you today is something that I think relates to all of us all the time. And that is, after you're about, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 years old, sometimes even before that, you begin to think about the legacy of your life. You begin to think about what, the, what things you will leave, what kinds of blessings, what kind of things will be there as a part of your life. We hear about it all the time when we're, um, when we're talking about presidents, the end of their presidency. There's always this conversation about the legacy of that person. Um, when, a, when a great senator, as, is, as recently with, with uh, Senator Stewart, passes, we talk about the legacy of their life. <clears throat> we often do this at the end of a person's life in a, in a memorial service. Uh, we'll share the legacy, what they've left behind. What's crazy about this is often those folks don't know the benefit, the legacy, the blessings until it's too late. My grandmother used to say, send flowers to people before they die because they don't get the blessing of them while they are, while they're, uh, while they're dead. So send them to them while they're alive. Tell them thank you while they're alive. Tell them how they've blessed you while they're alive. Allow that legacy to be a known factor in their life. I don't know how the Apostle Paul felt about his legacy when he died. As we, uh, we kind of closed last week, we closed with this final moment, this image of Paul's life. Uh, Nero has come to the throne. He's replaced Claudius. And as Nero arrives on the throne, Nero comes with, uh, with an agenda, with a a, a sort of crazy look in his eye. Right through that period there, you have some really crazy-sounding uh, emperors. Of, and I don't, I don't know whether there's something crazy in the blood right there, or they just were going a little wild. But at that moment, when Nero comes to the throne, he comes a little crazy as he's born on, as he comes into it. Rome burns shortly after he arrives there. And he's accused of burning it so that he can do a re, uh, regrowth or reproduction of, of Rome in his own image. He accuses the Christians of the one, uh, to be the ones who've burned it because two of the uh, of the left uh, two of the priests man I can't get started today two of the precincts that were left were Christian precincts and were untouched by the fire. So he goes out and starts persecuting Christians. And as we as we close this last week, Paul was caught up in that persecution. Sometime between sixty five and about sixty seven, Paul is beheaded for his faith. Rounded up with the Christians after having been released already, he's rounded up again and he is beheaded for his faith. The Romans would uh, typically in the first century, you would be crucified or you would be beheaded. Beheading was considered a more generous, a more kind thing to do to you, as as you might imagine. And so the Apostle Paul received a kinder, a gentler end of life. But as his life closes, the breath ebbs out of his body. He, he dies. The legacy of Paul just carries forward without, without hardly a step. 
You see, his, his body is taken then, and I'm taken about two miles away, and it's buried, listen carefully, it's buried in a borrowed grave, just like Jesus. The grave belonged to a wealthy Christian woman named Lucina. He's buried in her grave. It's a Roman cemetery because, remember, Paul is a Roman citizen, which might also explain why he's beheaded instead of crucified. As he's buried in that spot, it takes a very short time before it becomes a place of pilgrimage. They put a a small monument for him there. These monuments typically were like a small tree. They kind of looked like a tree. They had, uh, like, normally a couple of limbs would go out and... And the, they were originally monuments for, to celebrate the conquering uh, of, of, a, of, a, of an opponent. And, and uh, they would, this would be placed there over that opponent's grave. And his, the, the, the uh, articles of that opponent would be hung on there like his clothes and his helmet and his spear. But in Paul's case, this monument goes up and Christians start coming. Because they're under a great deal of pressure from the government. They're under a great deal of pressure they're being killed by the thousands all over the Roman Empire. Diocletian will come and he will swear that he will wipe, wipe Christians out. And through, through the, the years that follow after Paul's life, people will come to that grave and they will come and pray. They are praying for the kind of courage that he had to stand up when they needed to stand up, to speak out when he, they needed to speak out to continue to love and care for the people around them because that's what they saw in this man. They saw a person whose legacy was one of courage in the face of a great deal of persecution and one who continued to speak, to speak to anyone who came around, to speak to to leaders and governors and emperors, to speak to guards, it didn't matter. He continued to share with anyone and everyone who talked. Anyone and everyone who he met, he continued to share the Word of God. What I want to share with you today of that legacy is a broad sweep, but I want to catch one particular place and linger there a bit. Paul had a wild church. Um, If you know the history of Paul at all, you know that Paul... uh, Paul is an apostle who goes from church to church planting people, from community to community planting churches, I should say. And as he moves around from place to place, he gets to Corinth. And Corinth is a very important city in Rome at the time. And he plants this church there, and the church gets started. And if you've read the Corinthian letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you know these are some wild folks. Lots of crazy things are going on in this church. There's a, there's a drive among them. They're, they're seeking after the gifts of the Spirit and they're claiming one is better than another and there's, they're arguing over God's movement in their own life. And you know, we, we often look at this and say, how despicable, how terrible. But at least they're practicing the gifts of the Spirit. At least they're trying. At least they're excited about it. You know, I would much rather have a church that's excited about it and making some mistakes than a church that's bored about it and sitting on the sideline and not participating. This church is participating. Now, that, granted... They're doing a lot of crazy things, but they're in the game. They're doing everything they know how to do. A lot of times it's wrong, but they're at it. They're doing it. So Paul writes them the letter, the first Corinthian letter. He explains to them lots of the issues that are going. Chapter 11, he, he, he talks to them about some of the problems they're having with the way they're doing communion. 
Um, chapter 12, he's wrapping up some comments about the spiritual gifts and the competition they have for it. And I want to pick it up right there in chapter 12. At the end of chapter 12, he's, say, he's talking about gifts and gifts of apostleship and teachers and miracles and healings and tongues, etc. And he says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts. He said, it's all right. Don't, don't think yours are superior to someone else's, but keep trying. Keep earnestly asking God for the best possible gifts. And yet, when you're in the middle of, when somebody's in the middle of a conversation with you and they're, they've just said something, they say, and yet, or but, or and, and they kind of tell you what I'm going to say next kind of disqualifies or is, is going to amplify something here. The things before are of lesser value than what I'm about to say. He says all of those things, and he says, and yet, I show you a more excellent way. I show you a more excellent way. It is the drive of that excellent way that marks this man's life. From the Damascus Road, when conversion takes this angry mobster, this angry villain, this murderer of Christians off the scene. And through the conversion that only Christ can provide, creates in him a man who loves his neighbor and will give his very life for the believer. That man who loves and cares about everyone around him, that man who cares about the salvation of people all over the empire. When he writes the book to the Romans, when he writes the book to the Romans, he's yet to even go and see them. He's commenting on how things are going with them because he cares about their spiritual lives. He tells the Philippians, every time I think about you, I pray for you. He tells group after group after group, I'm keeping track of what's going on from, with you. I'm hearing about you from other people, and I'm pleased, or I'm praying, or I'm concerned, because he loves these people, and he wants nothing more than to see them in the kingdom. So as Paul is talking about these most excellent ways, I started thinking about Paul's most excellent legacy. What is the legacy of Paul? I, I would almost bet... That most Christians, and even some non-Christians, have a piece of Paul's legacy in their heart. Some things that some of the things that he left behind. Those little bits and pieces can be life-changing. You can take one of those things. One of the things Paul said changed my entire ministry. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Transformed everything I thought about God. I was a new believer, a relatively new believer, and, and I was aligning, trying to align myself with what the Bible said. I was trying to do the things that God said in the Scriptures. And I thought there was some, some merit, something to be earned by doing so, that God, God would be happier if I did it this way. And I began to read that passage, and I began to think about that passage, and I began to be considerate of that passage. And I realized that a gift, in fact, I, I, I began to be taught that a gift is a free thing. Some people had spoken that into my life, but the Holy Spirit started blossoming that idea. That a gift is a free thing. That if you are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. That means it has to be free. So all of the things that I was trying to align myself with to make God move in my life, to make God want to save me, to, to have God carry me off to the end of time, well, they, they weren't 
really what the story was about. That in fact, if Paul's comments theologically were correct, then everything had to change. The reason for what I was doing had to change. There had to be a different understanding, and it meant it just shook everything. And I started discovering other things in Scripture. I began to recognize what Jesus was saying when he said that we're just we're called to stay connected with him, that he will do the transform, transforming of us. I heard Paul also say that who began a good work in me would see it through to the end. And the legacy of Paul, the teachings of the theology of the New Testament, began to get into my life and began to change the way I thought about how things worked. And I began to realize that when Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, he was describing the reason for the rules, the reason for the law, that alignment with God was abundance in itself, that alignment with what God taught was abundance in itself. And when a preacher said, hey, God's law is descriptive of fact, not prescriptive of an outcome, descriptive of fact, not prescriptive of an outcome, all of that weighed against Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, I went, of course. Of course. Newton didn't discover gravity. He just described it. If I don't know Newton's laws and I jump off the building, it doesn't change. It doesn't change the outcome of what's about to happen to me. I'm not going to float because of ignorance. So knowing this thing doesn't change the outcome. It simply describes the outcome. And if God's laws were descriptive, then they were simply telling me how to live the best possible life on this little messed up armpit of the universe planet. Changed everything I thought about the way I go about my faith. And as a preacher, about the way I teach about that same faith. The legacy of someone can be transformative. One of my favorite movies is a chick flick, and I'm a little embarrassed to say that right now in public. It's an old movie from uh, early 2000. It's a movie called Serendipity. Some of you are at home right now. If, you're, if my, my wife is at home right now going, see, I knew it, because I have probably never actually told her this. The movie was released in 2001. It's a story of a man and a woman. It's one of those, it's classic chick flick, chick flick fodder. They meet in New York City by happenstance. It's Christmas time, which is always great for a female film. I'm trying to find another way to say that, but it, you know. It's a, it's, a, it's a classic. It's Christmas time. They go into a shopping area. They're both reaching for the same pair of gloves. Some of you know this movie. They're both reaching for the same pair of gloves to give to their intendeds, their their boyfriend, girlfriend, they're, they're the person they're actually with, and they're reaching for this pair of gloves. And a, a competition and a conversation leads to a, a, an opportunity for them to sit down and have, uh, have some, uh, some dessert together. And they, they, they have this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and they realize they really like each other. But they are both, they're, they're both already committed to someone else. And so it's not right. It's not the right timing. And the movie follows this process with them throughout. And I'm not going to give you the whole thing just in case you're going to go home and get real excited and find this on Amazon for this evening's entertainment. If, if you do, just know that this is it and you, it, you don't think less of me. My favorite part of the movie is this climactic moment. <laughs> His best friend writes obituaries for the New York Times. His best friend writes obituaries for the New York Times. I looked up the obituary. It's under the obituary scene if you want to look it up. 
I looked up the obituary. It's written um, by, his, by his sidekick, the guy he's been going through the movie with as they, at the end of the movie, are searching for the girl and all that. His sidekick writes this obituary. And there's this, uh, this transformational moment, this scene that transforms all that's going on. Both men are impacted by what's written. He's not obviously dead. It's an obituary for him as if he were. The obituary for Jonathan Traeger, prominent television producer for ESPN, died last night from complications of losing his soulmate and his fiancée. Two different people. He was 35 years old, soft-spoken, obsessive. Traeger never looked the part of a hopeless romantic. But in the final days of his life, he revealed an unknown side of his psyche, the hidden quasi-Jungian persona, surfaced during an Agatha Christie-like pursuit for his long, reputed soulmate, a woman whom he only spent a few precious hours with. Sadly, the protracted search ended late Saturday night in complete and utter failure. Yet, even in a certain defeat, the courageous Traeger secretly clung to the belief that life is not merely, merely a series of meaningless accidents or coincidences. No, but rather it's a tapestry of events that culminate in an exquisite, sublime plan. Both men are transformed by those words. Both men stop and in that moment realize that there is a plan in this world that is beyond their reach. They realize that there's something bigger going on. And I won't give you the rest of the story, but I will tell you that for all of us, those things are possible, accessible, and real. If you have not yet discovered that in your own life, if you've not yet discovered what Paul was being driven by, if you've not dis yet discovered that God is working behind the scenes in all of our lives, if you've not yet discovered that the, the ultimate goal of God is to save mankind, to save you, He is not trying to keep you out of heaven, He's trying to get you into heaven. And He's working all in, in all manner of ways to try to make that happen. He'll bring people in your life to talk to you. He'll bring words into your life from somebody like Paul. He'll bring interactions with, with uh, your own personal experience that are beyond your, your, your common understanding. You, you'll know that there's a revelation, that there's something bigger. You'll, you'll see it in the sky. You'll understand it in what's happening around you. You'll know that things are not happenstance. And in the recognition of that, your heart will begin to beat a little differently. It'll begin to, 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 to realize some things. And you may take that very thing and that may become the legacy of your future. If you were to die at the end of your life and you were to say, hey, um, I want to leave this behind, what would it be? Would it be a giant building somewhere? Or would it be an impact on the lives of people you love? Would it be a giant bank account? Or would it be an eternal difference in somebody's life? What would the legacy you hope for be? How would that legacy show itself? How would it be impact? How would the impact last? 
The words of the apostle are, We know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purposes. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known to God. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And probably my favorite. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or a sword? It's interesting, a sword. The last thing Paul saw was the raising of a sword. The last thing he saw on earth was the raising of a sword of a sword and people come to his grave and they say Lord please help me be as brave as this man was Lord I don't know that I could face the sword I don't know that I could face the tribulation I don't know that I could face all that he's faced but would you give me the courage of this man would you help me to be strong for my children for my family for my neighbors for my loved ones Paul said, I show you a more excellent way. Spiritual gifts are awesome. I'm glad you have spiritual gifts. But if if you have the, the best spiritual gifts in the world and you have no love, it's of no use. Samson has tremendous spiritual and physical gifts, but rather than Samson being a testament of what God can do in a life when all the talents are turned over to him, he's a byword. He's a, he becomes a warning for us about allowing, uh, allowing your lusts to take over your life. And he ends in this ignominious moment, which he turns into a victory over his enemies in spite of the fact that it's actually a suicide in the moment. Paul says, you could, you could give all of your money away. You could give your body to be burned. You could, you could die in the worst possible martyrdom situation. But ultimately, if you're doing that out of pride or selfishness, if you're doing that out of self-aggrandizement, if you're not doing that out of love, it's really a worthless gift. He goes on to describe Love's endurance, love's passion. He goes on to describe love's continuousness, love just not failing at all. And he ends with, I give you these 
three things. There remain, there abide, there are left still three things. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's an interesting close. Because you would think that the greatest of these might be faith. You're saved by grace through He said, you're saved by grace through faith. Faith is very, very important. Faith in the one who was, in fact, the Son of God. John would write in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believed in Him or has faith in Him will have eternal life. The disciples will repeat over and over again that only having faith in Jesus, turning to and following Jesus, that's all you need. Once you understand that He is the Son of God and follow Him, He'll lead you home. And it's true. And the Apostle says faith is amazing. And it's one of the things that abides. It's one of the things that lasts beyond the planet. But it's not the greatest thing. And what about hope? What is a life without hope? It's hope that that allowed him to stand there before his executioners without fear. It's it's hope in an eternity that was given to him and and encouraged in him and blessed in him and, and guaranteed to him by God and through the Holy Spirit. Hope was, in fact, what allowed him to have courage. What about hope? Hope in an eternity that is with God. Hope that your sins are forgiven. Hope that you can move forward against all obstacles. Hope is very important. Faith and hope, awesome. But he says it's not the biggest, it's not the best, it's not the greatest of things. The greatest of things is love. The greatest of things is that one word definition of the character of God. The greatest of things is love. Faith is a wonderful thing, but love transforms. Hope is an amazing, amazing element. It's a, it's a tool deep in the, in the chest of a person who's abiding and following Jesus. But hope without love has no end, nothing to hope for. These things will carry forward into heaven. They will abide. Because faith in God, trust in God is the relationship. All relationships are built on trust. All relationships are built on trust. And a growing relationship grows in an understanding and a knowledge of the person. Grows its trust because of the knowledge of the person. All relationships are built on faith. They're built on trust. Even in heaven as you learn and grow and learn and understanding, there's hope for greater discovery. An eternity with God is an eternity of the next thing. An eternity of the next revelation. An eternity of understanding. Always hoping because you are aware that you can trust the one you have faith in and the one you love. Always hoping, always hopeful for the next thing. Not hopeful in a way that things are negative, but hopeful in this blessing that is to come. But Paul says, all of these things will abide. But love is the thing. Love is the most excellent thing. Love is the most important thing. It's been been tough for me during this COVID season because though I am called to a spiritual mission, I've been caught up in a political problem. Though I am called to bring spiritual content into the world, it's politics that have been getting in my way lately. For several months now, I've been irritated and frustrated by the politics of the situation. And this week the Lord reminded me that I was not on a political mission. 
And as much as politics may tick me off, that is not my calling. And as much as politicians I may want to speak against, that is not my calling. Because my calling is to bring the love of Jesus into the world. And in reality, I have already been told, God has already ministered this, this message to me before, that the hope of the world is the love of Jesus, not a politician's election. That the hope of the world is not governed by cities or states. That the hope of the world is at the foot of Jesus. And they can close church buildings, but they can't close the church because the church lives in here. And that the ministry of the church in all of its places is grown in times like these. That the ministry of the church is grown in the discomfort, not in the comfort. We never move on from our comfortable seats unless something makes us uncomfortable. I'll give you an example. You're sitting in that seat. You've been sitting in it all day watching ESPN or watching chick flicks or whatever you're doing that's keeping you there all day long. And you sit 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 and an hour goes by and then two hours go by. And at the end of the day, you've been there for two and a half, three hours. And after a long time, that comfortable seat starts to hit you in some place that's not comfortable anymore. You do not move till it's uncomfortable. When it gets uncomfortable, suddenly you will find yourself shifting and moving out of that spot. We don't move unless we're uncomfortable. The church stayed in Jerusalem till it was too uncomfortable to be there. And then they moved out and the gospel spread. The church stayed in Europe until it was too uncomfortable to be there. And then they moved to the new world to get away from the persecution that was in Europe. And the gospel spread. What is God making uncomfortable in your life today? It may be that on that discomfort, He's going to build a legacy. Your legacy may actually be the discomfort that He's pushing into your life right now. Where is God making you a little uncomfortable? Where is He tweaking you just a little bit? The apostle was doing well. He understood his world. He understood the people he was working with. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was on top of his game. He was one of the youngest guys to ever achieve what he achieved. He had nothing but rosy future laid out in front of him. He would be a leader in Israel for his entire life. And then God made him uncomfortable. God knocked him to the ground with a bright light, spoke into his ear and said, Paul, the perse- or Saul, the persecution that you think you're doing to the Christians you're doing to me, Jesus Christ, made him so uncomfortable that he moved out of that plush, perfect life he had built and placed his life at risk for the rest of his life on behalf of Jesus. Had Saul been the persecutor of the church, he'd have been a footnote in the book of Acts, and that would have been all of it. But because Saul chose to follow Jesus, because Saul chose to fall in love with Jesus, because Saul chose to have faith in Jesus, because Saul chose to place his hope in Jesus, because Saul chose to become Paul, he became the theologian of the New Testament. He left a legacy that is still blessing people. 300 years after his death, Christianity takes over the empire. One of the first things that Constantine, the first Christian empire, does is build a basilica over the grave of Paul. 
which by now had become a place of intense pilgrimage. That church is still there. It's been burned. It's been rebuilt. It's been decorated. It's been so many other things. But beneath that building is an eight-foot-long, four-foot-wide, three-foot-tall box. And it appears that the real remains of the apostle are still there. And the remains do nothing but the memory of a man transformed by the love of Jesus still lasts to this day. What will your legacy be? What will your children talk about to their children? What will your grandchildren quote that you have said? What will the legacy of your life be? A footnote? Or will the legacy be found in the blessings you've presented to the people you love? We recognize this man because of his self-sacrificing, determined love for the church. Let's pray. Father God, just thinking about leaving a legacy, anything in the nature of what Paul left. It leaves us a little intimidated. 